Good evening. My name is Kai Jackson. It is a uh, pleasure to be here tonight at the beautiful main hall of the Central Library. You all know we're very blessed in the city of Baltimore and the state of Maryland to have such a wonderful facility here. I'm, I know this library rivals uh, anything across the country. Uh, I'd like to welcome everyone this evening on this very exciting night for the Pratt Free Library. Tonight we promise that it's going to be a wonderful evening celebrating Southern literature. Mr. Pat Conroy, we're doing this to honor an amazing writer whose remarkable work has captivated, as you know, readers for nearly 40 years. So we're taking you down to the South tonight to showcase its beauty and its elegance. It is the backdrop of the novels of our honoree tonight, Mr. Pat Conroy. I now have the pleasure of introducing the person who leads an amazing group of librarians and staff members. She and her colleagues here at the Pratt have not only been recognized for their hard work in Baltimore, but across the nation as well. President Barack Obama has even noticed by appointing her as a board member to the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Please welcome the Chief Executive Officer of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, Dr. Carla Hayden. Thank you so much. Good evening, and this is just a delightful, delightful evening. Who would have dreamed that the Pratt Library Central Hall could turn into Charleston for a night? It is amazing. Also, that I would get an opportunity to see all of you who've been such loyal supporters of the Pratt, to meet new people, and to also meet a couple who came here from Kansas City just to see their favorite author. Could you please stand up? That is really something. And of course, as a librarian, it's a special honor for me to meet Mr. Conroy, but also to do a plug for The Reading Life, because there's a chapter in that called The Librarian. Now, to give you a sneak preview of that chapter, it's a kind of conflicted chapter because it takes place in the South, and it's about a librarian who, he said, did not welcome him with open arms. And she was especially unwelcoming when she found out about his stance helping African-American young people. And she almost kept him from the library. But as he said, I was born to be in a library, and there wasn't a thing that she could do to contribute to that or to turn me away. And so we want to just welcome you here. She's not here anymore. <laughs> I now have the pleasure of introducing uh, one of the Pratt Library's favorite friends, our honorary chair, Mr. Taylor Branch who's going to introduce tonight's honoree. And I sh I'm sure many of you know Baltimore's own uh, Pulitzer Prize winning uh, author, uh, the Clinton tapes, 
all of the things that he's done. But I think what you might not realize is that he's been such a staunch supporter of not only the Pratt Library, but libraries throughout the country. And I had the opportunity to see him at an American Library Association conference where he not only gave his speech to all uh, 3,600 librarians, but then he took time afterwards and met with them individually. And so we just want to thank you for being a friend of libraries and librarians. Thank you. What a lovely evening. We were, all of us in Baltimore are proud of our library and of Carla, even before we were decked out like this tonight. It's a, truly a glorious evening. Uh, I think that we will all be inspired by uh, Pat Conroy, and I think Pat will be inspired and, uh, by the library and the vision that we have here in Baltimore. I have been a Pat Conroy fan since the mushroom soup scene in the Great Santini. <laughs> For those of you who don't know what it is, I will not explain it now, but everybody else will know what it is. And having become a fan, it was a great surprise well after midnight about 20 years ago when the phone rang. I picked up the phone and this voice said that it was Pat Conroy and he wanted to talk about race relations and Dr. King. He had just finished reading one of mine, and we fell into a... I think he was in San Francisco, and he didn't realize how late it was where I was, but we fell into a conversation, and our, our accents got more and more southern <laughs> till you started, we started having marbles in our mouth, you know. Um, you, can, you can do that, and you might have thought that an amazing friendship would have grown out of, uh, out of this wonderful introduction and common life. We were born in Atlanta, both of us, within about a year of one another, uh, both to mothers from Alabama. Uh, he's the first of seven children. I'm the first of six. Uh, we've grown up together, and it could have been the beginning of one of his stories, but the fact of the matter is I just met him for the first time tonight. Writing is a hermit-like existence. It's not very, very, very social. Uh, I, what I know about him um, a, a, a lot is from my wife because his novels are often right across the bed from me. I'm reading some old manuscript of nonfiction letters back in the Dolly Madison era now, and she, of course, has South of Broadway, so I get a review all, all along the way. Um, so, but I know he's brave. And the reason I know he's brave is that I get enough flack writing about the public lives of people who are strangers and are deceased. He writes about the private lives of people who are still alive and are his blood relatives. <laughs> this is unimaginably brave uh, to me. But that's because he writes about the heart in conflict, uh, the substance of great literature. Uh, he's a great gift to us and deserves the honor that we are bestowing this evening. So I think Pat Conroy and this library and this hall and the people of Baltimore are a great match for one another. 
So I'm proud to present him to you this evening as the Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Pat Conroy. I knew my sister would sneak into this thing. <laughs> First of all, I got to tell the Pratt Library and Taylor Branch. Um, when I walked into this library tonight, can you imagine how this felt to see Charleston prison? Uh, this is so extraordinary, so out of the ordinary, so unlike anything I was expecting to walk in to a library decorated in honor of a book I have written. I've never had anything like this happen in my entire life. I spoke to the Charleston Library Society last month, and when I walked in, they did not even have a magnolia blossom. Uh, this award moves me more than I, I, I don't win awards. You know, that has not been part of my uh, MO as a writer at all. And I do not read from my books because I have gone to other writers' readings and they were the clearest substitutes for, for Ambien I have co come across <laughs> in my life. But because this was a uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, I wanted to tell you something about that lifetime, where these books came from. Um, and there's the first chapter of my reading life, it's called The Lily, in which I talk about my mother, Frances Dorothy Peak Conroy, called Peggy. Uh, the poorest girl I have ever heard of in the Depression White South. I just found this out because my next book is called The Death of Santini, which I talk about my father's, the second half of his life. But in going back to study my mother, who is the reason I became a writer, my mother who raised me to be a Southern writer, with emphasis on the word Southern, do not be ashamed of our people, Pat. Do not ever be ashamed of what we came from. My mother was ashamed of where we came from, but it was the driving force of her whole life. And I can tell you mother, my mother's exact social level in the world by telling you the names of her relatives. There's my grandfather, Jasper Catlett. His brother, Cicero, Clyde, Pluma, Talitha, uh, Biddy Biddy, all the singing names of my southern tribesmen came roaring out. We were cleaning graves in Piedmont, Alabama one time. Once a year we went on clean graves. And I was cleaning one of a great uncle called Jerry Meyer Peak. That's M-I-R-E. 
And I said, who's he named after Stanny, my grandmother? And Stanny says, he was named after the prophet, Jerry Meyer. (laughs) Now, my father, a Chicago Irishman, six foot four, 230 pounds, knuckles dragging on the ground. He would get out on happy hours. He'd come into the door killing small rodents and turtles on his way in. He heard my mother's family names, and he thought they were the hickiest things he'd ever heard in his life. So he named all his seven children. By the way, there were six miscarriages. And my sister Carol thought the miscarriages were the lucky ones. And they heard what was going on in my family and just said, no way, man. I'm not signing up for that at all. So dad took over the naming of his children. There's me, Pat, Carol, Mike, Kathy, Jim, Tim, Tom. (laughs) And with that list, you have all you need to know about the imagination of the American Irish. (laughs) Now, when I write these books, this always happens to me. Is I remember I was signing the Prince of Tides in Atlanta. And you all know the type in Baltimore. Taylor knows the type because he's from Atlanta. Okay, I have this, this brushed thoroughbred couple. Young, fresh, new. The world is going to be great. They come up to me. And I find out that the guy at the University of Georgia was president of KA. And his wife was president of the Tri-Delts. And they had that comb look of a Palomino that you, <laughs> these people always have. And so the husband was looking down at me with his sneering nose. And he says, boy, your family's really nuts, aren't they? <laughs> and I said, yes, they are. <laughs> and now that we're on the discussion, pal, let the subject turn to, to your family. How far do we, and y'all can do this too, how far do we have to go in your family before I came to the first nutbag? Is it mom, dad, brother, sister, aunt, uncle? His wife couldn't take it at last. His wife says, his mother's nuts. And I said, I've generally found that. You know, when I talk about families, especially Southern families, um, and the South has this way, it, it, it adheres to you like beggar's lice. It simply is something that grabs onto you. I don't care where you came from. You come through this part of the world. It's going to have an extraordinary effect on you. Now, this mother, I must come back to this mother, and libraries. Peg Conroy um, got a high school education, married a Marine Corps officer, so she became an officer's wife when she was 17. And she, she had a marvelous way of dealing with all this. And she read more than anyone I've ever met in my life. She, went to, she signed up at every library on every base we ever were. 
She took out more books every year. She, of course, she cheated because she had seven children. She was allowed five books for each person. So mom was checking out five adult novels for the baby. <laughs> and mom would check out five adult novels for the one-year-old, the two-year-old. So mom became the most extraordinary reader I have ever met. Here's how good a reader she was. When I was five years old, uh, she read my sister Carol and I, Gone with the Wind. Dad was in Korea flying warplanes. And my mother would read to us, but here's what the genius of my mother was. She would read us the book and she would go this way. Now, Pat and Carol, she had a beautiful voice, Pat and Carol, you may notice when Miss Scarlett O'Hara walks out on the center stage, she is going to remind you a lot of that sexy, cunning woman, that preposterous but lovely, lovely, treacherous woman, your own mama. <laughs> And Rhett Butler will remind you of that swashbuckling father who is now flying against our nation enemies. And Melanie Wilkes, well, she's going to be like that tacky Aunt Helen you got hanging around Orlando, Florida. <laughs> Every character in the book, my mother associated with somebody real in our life. And it was a powerful way to come to language, to come to books that it had a relationship between the life you were living and the life you were meant to lead. And when I was seven years old, living in New Bern, North Carolina, Cherry Point, my mother read Carol and I, The Diary of Anne Frank. And as she read Anne Frank to us, okay, now here's what happens. I can remember this right now, is I'm a little boy, seven years old, and a little boy falls in love with Anne Frank. They got those little pictures, and she's cute, and she's just cute as she can be. And I was sorry, I wasn't in the attic with her. Instead of that little loser she had up there. And, <laughs> and my sister just thinks she writes this story, goddess. And then suddenly, my mother stops reading. And Carol says, what's wrong? Why'd you stop? What happened to Anne? And my mother had to tell her seven-year-old son, five-year-old daughter, about concentration camps, about cattle cars, about six million Jews being slaughtered in crematoria. And so naturally, we were a little bit taken aback. That had been part of our world of the Lone Ranger, Tonto. But she's telling us this stuff. And I say to my mother, didn't the Nazis read her diary? They couldn't possibly have killed her if they just read her book. And my mother said something to distinguish her in the history of mothers to me. She said, I would like to raise a family that will hide Jews. I'd like to raise a family that will hide Jews. My mother was a redneck from Alabama. My mother was uneducated. I do not know where this woman came from. The next day, my sister Carol walks next door 
walks next door to Mrs. Oranger's house. Ms. Oranger answers the door, and my five-year-old sister says, we will hide you. <laughs> and Ms. Oranger says, that? But in the land of my mother, books were forces of nature, forces of escape, forces of liberation, forces of freedom. My mother was the first white Southern woman, redneck, and I can't emphasize that enough. She would kill me if she heard me say that. But a redneck girl from the hills of Alabama who did not have a racist bone in her body. It doesn't make sense to me. Never has made sense to me. And my brother Jim said, we were lucky to be raised in the South with parents who were not racist. Anybody was welcome to our table at any time we met them. Anybody. These two people never made sense to any of us. Now, it all went on. Now, okay trying to be why I love y'all for giving me this thing and uh, lifetime achievement you know this is uh, I didn't know if I could do this I had no can you imagine going to Citadel the cradle of novelists <laughs> and I used to know if this would work or not I mean it I had no idea how to do it go about it and there was one guy at the Citadel Colonel Gavarzi called the boo and I was terrified of the boo when I was at the Citadel. Uh, he hated me. Uh, he said, Baba, if I kick you out of school, I'm not even going to recommend you to Clemson. <laughs> but there was a rule in the court. If you got in trouble, go see the boo. I got in trouble twice. I went to see him. He helped me twice. The next year, he was fired for being bad for discipline. I saw the boo. I said, Colonel. I want to be a writer. He said, you major in English. I knew that. I said, what do you mean you knew that? At the Citadel, to major in English was an open admission you were gay. <laughs> I, mean, there's just no, I mean, that was just the way, you, the way you got it across to people. So I said, let me write, try to write a book about you. And you're getting fired. So I didn't know one thing about it. But, so the next year, I go interview the boo. I pretend what I know I'm doing. I never could type, so I'm writing these little notes. I'm serious. My brow is furrowed. I'm ridiculous. <laughs> At the end of it, I come up with a 250-page book. The boo reads it. He loves it. I said, Colonel, of course you love it. It's about you. It praises you. It makes you a magnificent figure in our times. And then he smokes these nauseating cigars, and he said, Bubba, you're an English major. When you guys are changing your pantyhose and adjusting your makeup down there in the English department, uh, do you ever talk about publishing books? I said, Carl, I have no idea how to publish a book. So he says, let's look in the yellow pages. <laughs> and he does. And in the R.L. Bryan... Um, 
section, he comes across printers and it says, business cards, invitations, books. <laughs> so I dress up, coat and tie like I am tonight, and I go walking in and I think, you know, this is going to be great. And I said, sir, I have written a book and I think you will like it. It's about the Citadel. It's about a guy that was the commandant in charge of discipline at the Citadel. And I would like you all to publish it. Guy looks at me, he says, you came to the right place, son. I said, no kidding. I thought it was hard to get a book published. And the guy says, not for a smart guy like you. He said, for $3,000, we'll do 1,000 books. $5,000, we'll do 2,400. So he had a, that little formula. I said, you have to pay? He said, son, do you think we do this for free? And I said, this is how you publish books? He said, of course. We've been doing this for 100 years. So I go to Willie Shepper at the People's Bank in Beaufort. I said, Willie, I have written a book about the Citadel. I need a loan. He said, a book about the Citadel? We've never had one. I said, I need $3,000. He wrote me out a check for 4000 And he said, here, I'm dying to read a book about the Citadel. There's never been one. Learn the first thing about publishing. Have an audience. <laughs> so they published my book, The Boo, Vanity Press. Uh, they, we've sold out the first edition before it went to print. And it ended up going to, still in print today. It is the worst book ever written by an American. <laughs> there has never been a worse book thrown out. But still, I thought it taught me. Now, this time, I'm teaching the first year of teacher integration in a place called Defusky Island. And I'm integration. And for one year, I was called the white school teacher. And I went around, the white school teacher, had these kids grades five through eight. On the first day of school, I find out they all 18 read by the first grade level. Five of them couldn't write their name. Five of them didn't know the alphabet. And I thought I'd discovered Saturn, as we now know in America. I had discovered America. So I write the superintendent school. I was not the old uh, decrepit man I was then. I was much fiery in my youth. And I've been raised by separate but equal. You remember that stuff? Biggest lie ever told Americans ever. So I write the superintendent of schools. Dear Dr. Trammell, you told me separate but equal? Baloney. This school is a disgrace. This school is garbage. This school is a nightmare. Everything I've been taught is a lie. He didn't go for the letter in a big way. <laughs> but I taught for nine months at that school. It changed my life. I was fired at the end of that year for gross neglect of duty, conduct unbecoming a professional educator, AWOL, and insubordination. I have never taught again. Uh, my resume was not one you like sending to other school districts after that. But People said, what happened to you, Pat? You're a nice boy. And I said, I can't tell you in five minutes. So I sat down in a white fever, and I wrote, and I wrote all night. 
and I wrote hard about what happened to me on that island. A uh, guy from Newsweek came in, did a story on my firing, told me I needed to get an agent, and he gave me the agent's name, um, my favorite agent's name, by the way, Julian Bach. So I called Julian the next day, and I'm terrified. And this must have happened to Taylor sometime in his life. He must have been, yeah, I am scared to death. And I write it all down. So I get to the New York secretary. Oh, that was great. Do you know Mr. Bach? Has he ever heard of you? Yes, I am the best friend of his second cousin who has just died of a heart attack. And we didn't know what to do with the body. This wasn't a good idea, but you know, I, it did get me to Mr. Bach. Who in the hell are you? I don't have a second cousin who even knows someone like you. And I said, read for my thing. Dear Mr. Bach, my name is Pat Conroy. I've written a book that I think you'll like very much. I taught for a year on a Carolina Sea Island, all black children. He says, who gives a crap? And he said, how did you get, I'm going to fire that secretary. Losers like you call me every single day. Bam, he hangs up. I write him a letter. <laughs> Dear Mr. Bach, whatever your mother loved about you in your early humanity as an infant has been simply torn out, erased, and destroyed by the canyons of New York City. And you are the rudest, most disgusting human being. He liked the letter. <laughs> he writes me down and he says, okay, perhaps I was wrong, but I don't think so. It was, I think, s s Saturday, and he said, get me a manuscript for the next Saturday's read. All right, my father would not let me take typing. Okay, I still don't type. So I have these 250 pages of untyping. So all my friends in Buford who are still talking to me, not a great number, they came over to the house. My wife and mother handed them out chapters, one chapter, two chapters, three chapters. When do we have to have it? Tomorrow. Pat's got to get it for the... The Sunday read. So they're handing them out, they're handing them out, they're handing them out, they're handing them out. They all come back within a day. And remember, this was not FedEx time or anything else. This was a long period to get these things there. So they come in. My wife and my mother are putting them in order, making sure the chapters are up. We ship them out on Thursday, I think. They got there for the Sunday read. I get a phone call from Julian Bach, and he says, Pat, Pat, my lad, we haven't read a single page yet, but the manuscript is the cutest thing I've ever seen. So he felt little Abner had written him a novel or a book. So I was hideously embarrassed. And especially when I found out that what had, 
caused him high hilarity when I got a, because I didn't type. I didn't know what directions to give to people. So one of my friends did yellow paper. One of my friends did blue paper, onion skin paper, line paper. And Harriet Kaiserling used her personal stationery. So I have put this thing together. And I also didn't realize the first chapter was 1 to 25. The second chapter was 1 to 10. The third chapter is 1 to 12. And Julian thought it was, he kept calling me to say, it's just adorable. It's just, the secretaries can't quit talking about it. A month later, I got a um, a month later, I got um, a letter from Julian Bach. He said, "Dear Mr. Conroy, we have read your manuscript, The Waters Wide, and we want to publish it. And we think this is going to be the first of many books that you publish. There'll be paper, everything else. But we also have talked to Houghton Mifflin." the publishers of Thoreau, Emerson, Emily Dickinson, and they want to publish your book. And here is the great news, $7,500. And I said, Mr. Bach, I can get it printed a lot cheaper down here. And he said, Pat, you do understand they pay you. So that became the sort of uh, myth of origin of my my writing career. And how after that, I started writing novels. And as Taylor said, I kept writing about my mother and father and this amazing family where I thought I was being raised by Zeus and Hera. And I thought I came into this house. Um, I had librarians on the way. I had teachers on the way. In this book, I write about my great teacher, Eugene Norris. And Eugene was one of those English teachers that changes your life and changes it forever. I didn't know you could become best friends with a teacher you had in high school. I was one of the executors of Gene Norris's will when he died. But I remember him giving me Look Homer Angel when I was a 15-year-old boy. He said, I think you're ready for the many pleasures of Thomas Wolfe. Ready? I was crazed. I was nuts. I could have been sued by his estate for plagiarism for the next 20 years. I just went, I love the way the language sounded, the long line. I, I got taken up, swept away. But that's what happens to me with books. It happens to me with language. It happened to me with Taylor's biography of Martin Luther King. I, I, get, I am like that. I'm passionate about the thing. But Gene took me up the next summer. And he took me up. And here's what I loved about Gene Norris. 
He took me to Asheville to the house where Thomas Wolfe was raised. And he takes me to that house and he walks me in. He says, Pat, those rocking chairs are where the boarders rocked after dinner. In that dining room is where all the boarders were fed by Mrs. Wolfe. His sister Mabel played songs for their entertainment before dinner began. He took me upstairs and there's one scene from the Comer Angel that still kills me. It's the death of his brother, Ben Gant. And I remember falling apart when I read that death scene in that book. Because that's what literature can do to you. You can fall in love with people in literature. Uh, You can weep bitterly at their death. You can be happy at some other deaths. Oh, so glad that guy's gone. (laughs) Bye-bye. But literature can do everything for you. And that's what the magic of it is. Then we left, and anytime I write a death scene, I always think of Ben Gant, and I'm always going up against the best death scene I know in literature. We went outside, and a guide that was taking us around, there was apples blooming. He jumps up, grabs an apple, and he says, Thomas Wolfe thought the best apples in the world grew in the western part of North Carolina. Gene jumps up, grabs it from me gives me the apple and says, eat it, boy. So as we're going down to Buford, I said, why are you making me eat this apple, Mr. Norris? He said, because it's high time, son, that you learn there was a relationship between life and art. When my father was dying, dying of colon cancer, He had taken the book I had written about him that he had hated, uh, the great Santini, and he managed to turn it. He managed to turn the thing. He hated the book always, but then Dad got suckered in by Hollywood. And Dad went crazy when he heard there's going to be a movie, and he would say things like, it's a shame John Wayne is dead, son. Only he could get my incredible virility across the American people. And Hollywood did me one favor that I've always loved them for. They sent my father a telegram that I had written. They said, Dear Colonel Conroy, we have hired the actor that's going to play you in Hollywood. He's going to fly to Atlanta to talk to you, get get observations about you, your mannerisms. His name is Truman Capote. (laughs) I found my father slipping on a (laughs) six-year. Anyway, but it was that movie that changed the family, changed the family dynamic. But I still kept writing about that family because they amazed me. The depth of their screwed upness amazed me. The depth of the screwed upness about your family would amaze me. Uh, I think it follows the human condition, you know, unless I'm wrong. And uh, but even Dad's death taught me that I was onto something, that I knew something. Uh, here's what it was: is Dad is dying. I interview Dad. And you know how when your parents die, you try to do something, you know, to make them forget about what's happening, to make them 
ease what's happening to make to get them interested in something else. So I interviewed Dad about his whole life as a Marine. And I found amazing things. I had no idea. I knew he was the worst father I had ever seen. I did not know you would not be want to be our nation's enemy when Don Conroy flew overhead. I had no idea. He was one hell of a Marine Corps fighter pilot. At one time, he was the most decorated Marine aviator in the Marine Corps. He never told any of his kids he won a single medal. So his dad's dying. I'm taking all this down. I'm writing all this down. And finally, dad gets it, what I'm doing. And dad says, oh, I got it. You're writing a book about me, huh, pal? I said, yeah, dad, I am. He said, you know, your career went downhill after you killed me in Great Santini. <laughs> he said, you messed up the sequel. And I said, don't worry, Dad, we're going to get back. And I said, okay, any interest in Hollywood, any from the actors? I said, yeah, there are. Tell me who they are. I said, well, there's Duvall, of course. There's Redford. There's Dustin Hoffman. Uh, Paul Newman would like to have a shot at it. And my father said, I'm tired of midgets playing me, son. <laughs> so Dad went through, and he began to die in earnest. And he'd become a very good father, a very good one. That amazes me to say that. But if I can say he was a bad one, I can also say he got to be a good one. And as he died, also, all the kids, all the Conroy kids gathered around because we wanted our parents to go out well. We wanted our parents to know they had raised children that knew how to act, that knew how to love, that knew how to take somebody out of the world with devotion, uh, with softness, with mercy. And we wanted to be able to thank them every day. And we wanted them to know we were all with them. So we were doing shifts of six hours. And right toward the end, I came in to relieve my sister Carol, who was a poet in New York. And my mother was proud. She made a poet and a novelist out of those two kids she read to all during their childhood. So I was relieving Carol, and I walked into the house. Way outside, I'm hard of hearing anything now. But I could hear her screaming at Dad. Dad! Dad, you got to tell me you love me, Dad. You got to tell me you're proud of me, Dad. You got to do it before you die. You just got to. You've got to do it, Dad. Tell me you love me. Tell me you're proud of me. So I go in. Oldest brother, Taylor. And I said, got Carol out and sat her on the couch. I said, Carol, Dad is dying. He is not going deaf. <laughs> and poor Carol, she's just torn up. She's hysterical. She says, Pat, he's never told me once. He loves me my whole life. He never told me he's proud of me for being a poet in New York. He's never told me anything that makes me think, you know, I mean anything to him whatsoever. Has he ever said it to you? I said, Carol, to tell you the truth. The phone rings in my house every day. 
and dad is on the other end and he says, Pat, I love you so much. I can't tell you how much I love you and appreciate you. And I'm so proud of what you've accomplished in the world. I'm just simply filled with love, filled with pride. And I only wish I felt the same way about Carol. <laughs> Carol goes berserk one more time. <clears throat> I calm her down. And then we go back into the room uh, for the death watch. And I think Dad would live for two more days. I mean, he was really weakening at that time. So we, we go back, and we're both calm, and we're holding Dad's hand, and we're doing all this stuff. When my greatest nightmare takes place, one thing I can learn in my life, there's one thing I cannot control, the people my brothers and sisters marry. <laughs> I control a lot of things. But my sister Kathy married the biggest redneck in Beaufort, South Carolina. And by the way, he loves it when I tell people that he's the biggest redneck <laughs> in Beaufort, South Carolina. He thinks there should be more rednecks in the Conroy family. And we'd be a much better family, more well-rounded. Anyway, Bobby Joe, who looks like the biggest redneck on earth, comes around the corner. He, uh, hey, he looks at my father. He goes, hey, old man, how are you doing? How are they hanging, huh? He comes around. My father, two days to live, says, I love you, Bobby Joe. <laughs> I'm proud of you, Bobby Joe. And my sister goes sailing off like a Roman candle. And in this thing. So I keep writing because somehow in the family I was raised in, in the South I was raised in, the mean South I was raised in, you know, something of the love of people caught me. And a genuine love of people, genuine love of family, genuine love of place, Baltimore. Who could, get, who could have a more wonderful sense of place than you all do? But all this went in. My mother's love of libraries. Uh, my father certainly had, you know, my personality, um, you know, was based on my father. Um, when my poor mother was dying, and mom, I got her from chemo, and I always take her to the nicest restaurants. Mom was, you know, southern girl. I take her to a nice restaurant. I, she couldn't eat, but I'd order escargot and, you know, foie gras. Go, we'll get it later. $100 bottle of wine. You deserve it, mom. We'll eat it later. Get it. She loved that. My mother tried to join a fancy literary woman's club and they required a college education so my mother said she graduated from Agnes Scott summa cum laude the last day this club has a meeting at this restaurant and my poor mother my poor mom 
they don't talk to her when they come in, you know, because she's lied to them, and so they go by and they ignore her. And you know, how, you know how the South can be. You know, they can, the South turns up a great nose, and they go by my mother. I get her in the car. She's two more weeks. She's going to be dead. She starts crying. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay, my mother could really cry. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And boys hate to see their mothers cry. I mean, I, I just cannot take it. So she's crying. She's uncontrollable. I said, Mama, you know those women back there? Yes. Would you like me to go back to that restaurant and throw every one of them through a plate glass window? And she said, you're a beast. Just like your father. I said, I do have that to thank you for, Mom. But I'll be glad to do it. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So we go another five miles. And I said, Mama, you know those women back there in that restaurant? Yes. I write about them in my new book, The Prince of Tides. My mother stops weeping. And my mother says, did you get them? I said, I got the living hell out of them. Then my mother says, will they know who they are? I said, tour guides will point them out on the street (laughs) when they're walking for shop to shop. And my mother said, son, you're just like me. Thank you for this award. I cannot thank you enough. My name is Bob Hillman, and it's, um, I guess, my um, honor and duty to come here every year and... um, hand out this award. It's a thrill to be honoring Pat Conroy, especially after that talk, with the Enoch Pratt Lifetime Literary Achievement Award. Mr. Conroy will be joining a group of prestigious authors, historians, and poets who have been honored with this award over the last 15 years, including Saul Bellow, Tom Wolfe, Norman Mailer, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Toni Morrison, John Updike, Alice Walker, and Ken Burns. On behalf of the Enoch Pratt Library's Board of Directors and Trustees, the Pratt Society, and the staff of the Pratt Library, we would like to award the 2010 Lifetime Literary Achievement Award to best-selling author Pat Conroy. It's a replica of the top of Mr. Pratt's cane. <laughs> 